Well, I want to start, now this is going to shock you, but I kind of want to do a little uh, context. And so I want to start with a map. And it's a map that you've seen before, but I kind of want to dive in a little bit because the story, we're going all the way to the end of Luke. I'm going to talk about a story that's in all four Gospels. Not all of the stories in the Gospels, nor would you expect this, are in all four. This story is, it's the story of the resurrection. Now, some Gospels have a few more details, others have fewer details, etc. But all the Gospels talk about the resurrection. And I want to talk about the resurrection. What does it mean? for us? How is it a template to change fundamentally the way we live in the world? But to do that, I thought it would be interesting to you to see uh, where this happened. There are two major sites that are nominated, so to speak, for where the crucifixion of Christ happened, and then the burial, which was nearby, which is all that you know, and of course, the resurrection. Now you may say, Terry, if this is so important, why do we not know where it is? Well, I want you to stop and think about, this is why you don't know where a lot of things are uh, from biblical times. Not because the land's not still there, not because the places are still there, but because it was not okay to be Christian in the first few centuries of uh, this uh, era. In other words, where Jesus it was known during his lifetime where the tomb was, but it's not like the Christians could put up a sign and said, this is the tomb of Jesus, come on through everybody, because the Jews were like, uh-uh, we don't like this Christianity thing. We're persecuting Christians. Remember Paul? He was putting Christians in jail, everyone he could find, he was putting them in jail. So they really didn't have an opportunity to pass down you know, where this is and that sort of thing. So then the Romans, kick in the persecution near the end of the first century, and it's, you don't even have church buildings, I mean, during this time, because it's like, well, well, get a church building, we know where to go to arrest the Christians. And so the persecution was huge until 313 AD. So think about that. You have 300 years that you can't put up a sign anywhere and say, this is where this happened, this is where that happened. And of course, the city of Jerusalem changed. I'm gonna show, all the pictures I'm gonna show you are pictures or models, obviously, of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus when these things happen. But over 300 years, things change. So I don't want you to be discouraged to say, why do we not know where all these places are? It makes perfect sense why we don't know, is you really couldn't put a sign up. For 300 years. The other reason I think that we don't know is I don't think God wants us to worship at a place. I don't think he wants us to turn Golgotha, which is the, where Jesus was crucified, into an idol, if you will. I mean, the risen Christ is in the whole world and the Spirit's in us, and we don't have a holy site. Christianity really doesn't have a holy site. Now, you may say, Going to Jerusalem is a great experience, yes, but we don't go there to worship. We worship here. And so I think there are a lot of reasons we don't know where, but there are two main candidates for Golgotha. So a little wording here. Golgotha is the Hebrew word for skull, and so you know he was taken to the place of the skull. Calvary is the Latin word for skull. So when you think about Jesus was crucified at Calvary, 
Golgotha, that's just a Latin and a Hebrew word that mean the same thing. So I may even use those interchangeably. So here are the two places. First, on the map, by the way, in all the pictures I've shown you, that's us, standing on the Mount of Olives, and we are looking that way at the temple. This is the east. This is the west. And so we were standing over here. There's a big old valley right here. And we were looking across at the temple. And the first image I'm going to show you is exactly standing there. But the first side I want to show you is on the western side. And this little site right outside the original wall in Jesus' time around the city. Because remember, Jesus was taken outside the city to be crucified, just like the scapegoat was always taken outside the city. Well, today the walls are farther out than that, but that where I've just marked is the original wall at that time, and just outside that wall is a place that is a traditional place of Golgotha. So let me show you where it is. Okay, we're standing on the Mount of Olives, we're east, and we're looking at the temple. We are going to, I'm going to take you around this side of the temple, and we're going to be over here on the west, and we're going to look at the back of the temple. Make sense? Because I want to show you where this place is. So here we are. Temple, this was us over here. This is a model, by the way, and it's a model of that exact time, and it's really good, and it's uh, very helpful. So we're standing here looking at the western side. By the way, in our last lesson, somebody asked, where is the western wall? Now I'm going to show you. This, by the way, this whole wall, all of this, huge retaining wall that Herod the Great built. Huge retaining wall. This is a retaining wall. The whole thing, all the way up. It's part of that retaining wall right here here in this little area today. Now today there are houses and all kinds of stuff, but there's a piece of this original 2,000 year old wall. That is the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. When you see pictures of that, you'll see it. Massive stone things because it's a huge retaining wall that held up the Temple Mount to the top of the temple. So that is where the Western Wall is. Where I want to take you, remember this is the Antonia Fortress. This is where the Roman soldiers would look down in the temple area. So that's a Roman fortress. Now I want to take you over here, kind of right in front of the Roman fortress. So we're going to be on the back, and that's where we're looking. Here's the Roman fortress. This is part of the temple. Temple's over here, right? This is the original wall in Jesus' time. And when you come out of the Antonia Fortress and you go out this gate, you just went outside the city, that rock quarry right there is one of the sites of Golgotha. Now that's what it looked like in the time of Jesus. What does it look like today? Big old Catholic church built on top of it. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so once you go in the church, it actually has a big shrine that is sitting, you can't see the rocks. I mean, it's just a massive church, and there's a shrine there that is the hill, uh, but you, you can't see it. It's just got a shrine on it. And then nearby is the tomb of Jesus. You can go in. You can see a little piece of rock. 
in there, but it's all covered up, that kind of thing. I wish they, well, I don't want to tear down the church, but I wish they weren't there. From an archaeological point of view, it'd be really cool just to see what it would originally look like. But so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre sits on that site today, but that's one of the sites for Golgotha. Make sense? So what we're going to study may have happened there. There is a competing place up here in the north. Again, right outside the city wall in Jesus' time. And it's called Gordon's Calvary after a British explorer that found this area and said, I actually think this is Golgotha or Calvary. That's where I think it happened. So let me show you this and I'll tell you why he thinks that. This is an old picture. This is an old road in the early 1900s. And I want you to look at this area right there in that cliff. And just to help you, well, that's not a lot of a skull, but you see the point. When you look at that, you think, wow, that sure looks like a skull. Let's get rid of that. Now you can kind of see it. If that is indeed the place, the place of the skull, then where Jesus was crucified was right down here. Romans, this is plausible. Both of these are plausible, meaning there's evidence that it could be at either one of these places. The Romans crucified people by main roads. The Romans were gonna get PR value out of crucifixion. They typically crucified people along the roads, why? Crucified people naked, brutal, unbelievably gory, hideous, because they wanted to say, this is what happens if you mess with Rome. I mean, they were brutal, but they wanted to make sure nobody messed with Rome. And so typically it would be along the road. This is a well-traveled road going outside the wall, headed north. So it's possible that this is the place of the skull and that this is where Jesus was crucified. I'm gonna show you a close-up now. You see that? little easier to see, isn't it? And so the English explorer said, that sure looks like Calvary. There's a major road here that looks like the place of the skull. And so that's why this became one of the reasons that this became uh, a site. Now I'm gonna actually take you, what you can't see on this picture, but just right over here to the left is uh, you're gonna, the city is right there to the left, and that road comes out of the city, but right to the left of this, and I mean like 50 yards, it's just right outside the picture, is a garden. And in this garden is a first century tomb. And uh, this is what it looks like. Okay, remember our skull is right over there. And it's just literally 50 yards away. This is original, obviously. And this tomb is a first century tomb. Obviously the stone is not there that would have been rolled in front of it. That's gone, been reused over time. But when you go in, there are little shelves in there and you can go in, we, we always go here. When you go in, you realize, oh my goodness, this is what it could, I mean, that's what a tomb looked like. So you literally can see what the tomb looks like. So one of the reasons for this is the tomb was close to the place of the crucifixion, and this is like 50 yards away. Now, this has been preserved, and there's a group that has made it back into a garden. It was actually a, a vineyard 
at the time. So it would have looked really nice like this. And then there was a tomb in uh, the side of the cliff. So those are the two places. Here's a little close-up of that uh, tomb cut into the cliff there, which is pretty normal. So I just thought you might enjoy that. So there are two competing places that could have been where this happened. They're both plausible. When you talk to people, they'll usually have an opinion one way or another. But they're both within reason of where this could have happened. They all fit, fit the model very well. And I want you to picture this because when we see the women going to the tomb, I want you to think about a place just like that. And so this, and that could be the place. I mean, it's entirely possible. That is exactly where this story happened. Okay, so let's dive into our story. This is at the end of Luke 23 and the very beginning of 24. So it says, now there was a man named Joseph. He was a member of the council. That would be the Sanhedrin. That is the ruling council of the Jews. I want you to think like a congressman or a senator. And this is the first time you meet Joseph, but he's in all four gospels. He's a key player. He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision. Remember when they had the mock trial before the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night and said, yes, let's crucify Jesus. He had not consented to that. He came from the Judean town, a Jewish town nearby called Arimathea. That's why he's called Joseph of Arimathea. And he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And that was a Jewish way of saying he was looking for the Messiah. He had not given up hope. It's been 400 years since the Old Testament is done. And he's, he's looking for the Messiah. He's obedient to God and he's, and he's waiting for God to deliver on his promises. Well, after Jesus was crucified, and if you remember from the story, at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice and he dies. And so Joseph of Arimathea went to Pontius Pilate. Why, did he, why would Pontius Pilate see him? Because he's a senator, right? He's a member of the Sanhedrin. Why would he release the body of Jesus to him? Because he's an important person. And so he goes to Pontius Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock in which no one had ever been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Let me pause there. He doesn't do everything you're supposed to do for burial because he doesn't have much time. The Sabbath is Saturday, still is for the Jews. Saturday is the Sabbath. But the way the Jews count days, and you probably know, know this already, but I'll go ahead and tell you anyway. Jews count days from the evening, Friday evening when the sun goes down, until Saturday evening when the sun goes down is Saturday. I mean, we start a day at what? I guess a.m. in the middle of the night. We start the next day. As soon as midnight passes, we start a day. That's not the way they did it. It's not the way Orthodox Jews do it today. As soon as sundown comes, then it's the next day. So at 6 o'clock-ish on that Friday when the sun goes down, when it gets to be dusk, actually when you can see the first star, but whatever, at about 6 o'clock-ish, it's going to be the Sabbath. You can't do anything on the Sabbath. But you're also not supposed to leave. This is in the book of Deuteronomy, Law of Moses. You can't leave him up there on the Sabbath. Kind of bad thing. So Joseph goes to Pilate in that short period of time, takes him down, wraps him in linen, puts him in a tomb before the Sabbath begins. It's called preparation day 
because on Friday, uh, you, you see, and by the way, that's why I crucified there, thousands of people are coming to Jerusalem to get food for the next day. You can't cook food the next day. And so they were preparing for the Sabbath when they would rest. When they couldn't light a fire, they couldn't do a lot of things on the Sabbath. So it was preparation day. So he was able to get Jesus down, wrap him at least in linen, and put him in the tomb before the Sabbath began. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. Why? Because you typically would anoint the body with spices and perfumes, and they were going to do it right. Joseph didn't have time to do this well, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. I mean, they wanted to go Saturday morning, but they couldn't. And I just want to make a remark here about these women in general, and that is these women are the ones who you're going to find out in the next verse. These are the women that traveled with Jesus and supported him and his ministry. Jesus didn't ask people for money. Uh, sometimes people would, uh, you know, would give food to Jesus and his disciples. I think a lot of times they just missed a lot of meals. But these women were disciples and believers, and so they went and they prepared the food. Some of them had enough means to help support them uh, during the ministry, and so they had come to Jerusalem with him. And I just think it's really interesting that as they had served Jesus in life, they were going to serve Jesus in death. And I just think it's a poignant act of faith on their part. But it's not just an act of love. You know, today we would think, well, love trumps the law. In other words, if you, you know, love means you don't have to keep the Sabbath. Well, they didn't think so, nor did Jesus. Love and obedience go together. And I just think it's beautiful to see they love Jesus, they want to take care of him, but they're going to observe God's law. And so they wait. And so Saturday goes by, and the next day, Sunday comes. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday. Sabbath, Saturday was the seventh day. God rested. This is a Sabbath. Well, then the next day, Sunday, is the first day of the week. All four Gospels mention this as well, that on Sunday morning, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they prepared and they went to the tomb. How'd they know where it was? They followed Joseph of Arimathea to see where the tomb was. But they found the stone rolled away. I'll show you the stone in a minute. This is not trivial. But when they entered the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. These are messengers, angels. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the two men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you this while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must, this is an interesting word, and I want to spend some time talking about that later, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered those words. So on Sunday morning early, they go. They're planning to unwrap the body, prepare it, wrap the body back properly, do things the way it's supposed to be done. Uh, they haven't thought ahead to see how we're going to get the stone rolled back, but th they just went. They just acted out of love and out of faith. 
want to show you what this looks like. Here are a couple of pictures. The one on the right is really typical. In fact, you can occasionally be driving along the road in Israel and see that cut into the side of one of the cliffs there on the road. And you will see a tomb cut into the, the rock, the limestone of the cliff. And this one happens to have the round stone. There's a little groove for it here. That's not easy to move, and, but when you get it in place, it protects it from animals or you know grave robbers, that kind of thing. Here's another one that's a really good picture of the stone, as you can see, and it's got a groove there, which you can't see, but it's made to be rolled. It's not easy to be rolled, to get in and out. But the way the Jews did it, they didn't get in and out very often. The way Jews did burial, I realize we're not into the lesson yet, but this is interesting. And so the way the Jews did burials, they'd take the body, they'd lay it in a, on a stone shelf. When you go in there, there's just like two or three shelves, uh, little platforms carved out, and they would lay the body on the shelf. They would go back in a year, and there would be bones in a year, and they would then take the bones, and at this time in history, they would take those bones and they would put them in a box, a stone box called an ossuary, and then they would take that, and I don't know, put it on their mantle, you know, in their house or something, right? So you would take it away. So the tomb was reused because all you did was lay the body in there for a year. Then you took the bones and you would preserve those. Those became kind of a family relic. That's why it's interesting it said a tomb that had never been used. And you might be thinking, why do they reuse it? Yes, they do. And so they had several little, the one I'm showing you had like three places in it but it would be used for generations of people. So that's what the, the tomb looks like. Now, as far as Jesus telling them, I just plucked these out of the Gospel of Luke because we're in Luke, so I thought we'd stay in Luke. But this is Jesus in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 18, remember we're in 23, saying this, and Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then later, he said, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But the disciples didn't understand. What do you mean by this? Then again, Jesus took the 12 aside. This is before they go to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man is going to happen. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, Pontius Pilate and his crowd. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. That's pretty impressive. Jesus said, this is what's going to happen, and you and I know, man, that's exactly what happened, right? On the third day, he will rise again. But the disciples did not understand any of this. I mean, they understand the words. They, it just doesn't fit with their conception of the Messiah. They're still thinking, we're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to proclaim you king. You're going to be the Messiah. We're somehow going to kick the Romans out, and life's going to be good. right? So th when they says they don't understand it, they're not stupid. They're just so fixed on an idea. They don't, how does this fit? I, I, what is he talking about? I don't know. Well, let's move on, right? And that's what happened. But the angel reminded them and said, don't you remember what he said? And the women go, oh, oh my goodness. He was serious about this, right? So when they came back from the tomb, now you're probably thinking to yourself, where are the disciples in all of this? I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if they're home playing Game Boy. I don't know if there was an NFL game on that morning. I don't know what they're doing. They're crushed, of course. 
But the women went on to take care of business. I know some of you going, isn't that the story? It always works that way. And, and the men, you know, aren't there. But they, so they go back to tell the 11, used to be 12, but Judas is gone. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Not so much, I know it's popular to say nobody believed women. They've been with these women, not so much because they're women, but because their words seemed like nonsense. They're still having a heart. What are you talking about an empty tomb? What are you talking about the body's not there? That doesn't make any sense to them. They're still stuck in that same paradigm, aren't they? Peter, however, this is rambunctious Peter, got up and ran to the tomb and bending over, you can now see why he had to bend over. Those were not high doors, they were small, right? Pretty small, when you're carving it, you don't put in a eight foot door. So Peter got up, ran to the tomb and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying there and he went away amazed. Another translation of this word is amazed and wondering what in the world can this mean what can this be? You know, one of the things I think about when I read this story is, I wonder about us, and I wonder, what is it about the story that's too hard for me to believe? What is it I've got so set in my mind about Christianity that I'm not really hearing other parts of it? I mean, I think, I think you can understand where they are, because I think we get that way too sometimes. We get an idea set in our mind, and then all of a sudden, for example, it might, it just occurred to me, it might have shocked you when I said maybe Jesus was crucified by the road, because I know every picture you've ever seen is on the top of the hill. If you read the gospel accounts, nowhere does it say he was, cruci he was crucified on the top of the hill. It makes for a good picture. And maybe it happened, but actually it's not very likely. Now, that doesn't make the Gospels untrue. The Gospels don't say he was on a hill. The Gospels say he was crucified at a place called Golgotha. And the Romans pretty much wanted to crucify you by a road so everybody could see you. So I say that to you as in a mild way. Well, I've always had it in my head it was this way, Terry. But you know, actually, this does kind of make sense. And it doesn't change the truth of the Gospel. It's just how, what I had in my head. Well, that's what they had in their head. Is like, resurrection? What, what are you talking about? We're crushed here. We didn't think Jesus was going to die. We thought he was going to be king. And so I do think you can understand how difficult this was for them. But I also think it's pretty interesting that the women were more open to this than were the male disciples. And I'm not saying anything about women versus men. I just think we shouldn't underestimate the, all of Jesus' disciples, not just the men. Question. Um, can you talk about the purpose of anointing the body with perfume and spices? Why did they anoint the body? Uh, well, pragmatically speaking, it smells good, but it's not like you had a long visitation. I mean, even today in the Middle East, they bury people quickly. Not this quickly, two hours because of the Sabbath coming, but they bury people very quickly. One of the reasons is for the smell. The other reason though is it's just a gesture of love, gesture of respect. It's just sort of giving your best. Uh, I don't, I'm not trying to equate this, but typically when you go see someone who's prepared for burial for us, they're wearing really nice clothes or a suit or something, you go, why? 
you know, well, because it's a gesture of respect and it's, a, it's, a, it's just you give your best, so to speak. So I think that's a lot of it, it's just a cultural uh, thing. So good question, I think that's why. Okay, so how does the three days and three nights work when he was buried Friday after three and resurrected Sunday morning? Good question, and in the question is another one of those things I've got in my head, three days and three nights, that's not what the text says. What does the text say? And on the third day, he was raised. He was put in the tomb on Friday. He was taken out of the tomb, raised, they discovered that, on Sunday. That's the third day. That's the way, I'm not trying to be cute, I'm just telling you, that's the way the Jews count. I mean, it is what it is. In other words, it's not like, oh no, we gotta make this up. When did he go in? It's gotta be three days. No, no, he literally, was put in the tomb late Friday afternoon, right before sundown, before Sabbath begins, and they go Sunday morning, and the tomb is empty. But Friday is a day, then at sundown it starts Saturday, Saturday's a day, Sunday. It, that's why he says, and on the third day he was raised. And the way the Jews count days, he was raised on the third day. It doesn't say he was there all day and all night for three of our 24-hour periods. I mean, that, this is sort of a, be careful what we get in our head, not because it's heresy or you're not gonna go to heaven if you don't think about this right. I'm just saying we get ideas in our head that really aren't there in the text. Just let the text say what it wants to say. So that's a great question and I'm glad you asked, but this is very consistent with what the text says. In fact, it's exactly what the text says. Good question. By the way, this is why Christians worship on Sunday. And Christian tradition was to worship on Sunday. At first, they would get together on the Sabbath, on Saturday in the temple courts, and they would sing songs and they would have Christ, you know, Christian services until the Jews started persecuting them. But very quickly, Christians worshiped on Sunday because that is resurrection day. That's the day Jesus was raised. And so that's why still today, Christians worship on Sunday as a matter of tradition because of that. So that's why and where that came from. So let's talk about some lessons from the story. So now you know the story. Story's about the resurrection, and we've kind of gone all around it, and hopefully you found that interesting and historical. And again, the gospel story is situated in history, and it's situated in real people and real time. This is not a philosophical system. It is a system based on a real person, things that happen in real places that you can still go see. So we talked about all of that, but how is the story of the resurrection? How does that impact us? And I have three things I want to talk to you about. First is this, the crucifixion and the resurrection were necessary. That's that's not something that everybody wants to believe, that all Christians want to believe. There are theologies within Christianity that would not say the resurrection is necessary or that it even happened, or especially that the crucifixion was necessary. And I'm using the word necessary instead of must because that's another translation. It, was, it is necessary for the Son of Man to be crucified. And on the third day, it is necessary for him to rise. Why is it necessary? Why couldn't you have 
the good news of Jesus Christ, that's what gospel means. Gospel just means good news, good story. Why couldn't you have the good news with just the resurrection? Like Jesus died and didn't. And you know what that means? This isn't the end. There is such a thing as eternal life. And Jesus made it possible for us. And that's the good news. Why isn't that the good news? Why is it necessary for Golgotha to happen, for the cross to be there? A couple of ideas as to why this would happen. And this is kind of key to the gospel. The idea of there isn't any good news without some bad news. If all you have is the resurrection, you have a solution. This is the way I like to say it. You have a solution running around looking for a problem. It's like, well, that's nice, but so what do you want me to do about that? Bonus, I'll, I'll just remember that. When I die, I'm going to live forever. The problem and the whole reason that there's a cross, the whole reason there needs to be a resurrection is that there's this incurable sin problem. The gospel, what this actually is, is the resurrection is the key to the gospel. If you look at the book of Acts, what were they mostly preaching about? Well, they were preaching about the reality of this event. Jesus really was here. He really did say these things. He really did go to the cross. He really was raised. He really did heal a bunch of people. They were talking about the eyewitness historicity of what happened. But when they told the gospel, they talked about the resurrection. They didn't so much, and I'm not saying this is necessarily bad, but when you read the book of Acts, they didn't say, you should follow Jesus because it'll make your life better. You should follow Jesus because you'll make wise life decisions. That's not what they said. Those things, I think, are true. But what did they say? They said, you have a sin problem. You are alienated from God. You have a problem. And people go, you know, I know that deep down inside. I've got a God-shaped hole. Deep down in my heart of hearts, I know that I'm not a good person. I know that I have done a lot of things wrong. I know that I have sinned. There is nobody, no matter what they tell you, if they tell you they haven't sinned, they're a liar. I don't care if you're Christian, non-Christian, everybody's ashamed of something in their life, usually a lot of somethings in their life. And there are an awful lot of people out there that find Christ because they made a mess of their life and hurt a lot of people. Sin is not a hard concept. And when people were thronging to Jesus in the book of Acts, Every single one of them, they weren't thronging to Jesus because they said, hey, guess what? You want to live forever? No, I don't think so. I think I'm just going to be done with this thing. I'm tired already. I definitely don't want to live forever. You know, That's not the point. The point was you have a problem and people go, that rings true. I do. I am sinful. I don't feel close to God. And if he's real, I've got a real problem here. The crucifixion is necessary to deal with that sin problem. And the resurrection is necessary to demonstrate that not only have you been reconciled to God, but you can live with God for eternity. You don't have a gospel without the cross and the grave. The other thing we do sometimes is we focus only on the cross. And that's a good thing in the sense that Jesus really did bear our sins on the cross to reconcile us to God. 
He paid the price so that we could be declared right, righteous, justified. All those words mean the same thing. That's true. And if, all that, if that's all there was, then it's like, well, all your parking tickets are canceled. Better not get any more. You know what I would have done? I'd be right back. I'd be a sinner again. Give me a year or two. I'd be back where I was. Because you can't do this on your own. The resurrection says, I'm not just Lord of your sins and your temporal life. I'm Lord of everything forever. I mean, somebody dying on a cross saying, I've got your sins. I mean, that's impressive. Don't get me wrong. But in and of itself, so what? That says you're a really, really good guy. Raised from the dead, now you have my attention. And that's what makes the difference between Christianity as a philosophy of life and Christianity as, oh my gosh, this is true. This is real. This changes everything. You know, when Gandhi says, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians, what he meant, I'm just going to focus on the first part. Why does he like Christ? He doesn't believe he's the son of God, doesn't believe he raised from the dead, but why does he like Christ? Because he's such a good guy. He's a moral example. He teaches like, hey, let's hug and love each other and sing kumbaya. Come on, guys, let's, let's all be nice to each other. That's what he likes about Jesus. The cross and the, re- and the empty tomb, you can't have that Jesus because that Jesus doesn't exist. The only Jesus that exists is the one that said it is necessary for your sins to be dealt with. And that's what I did on the cross. And it is necessary for you to come live with me and my father forever. And that's what the empty tomb is for. Does that make sense? I wanted to make a point here because why is this the essence of the gospel? Because it's necessary. Anything that doesn't include the cross and the empty tomb is a philosophy of life. It's just another self-help book. It may be a good self-help book, but it's just another self-help book. That's why this is so essential. Second, now I want to focus a little bit on the women and the men. And the disciples all come around, and they see Jesus in the flesh, and they go, oh my goodness, we t- you have just totally reoriented our world. We had this whole Messiah thing. We misunderstood this whole Messiah thing. It is way more than we ever possibly imagined. God is really awesome. But that faith came to some people then more quickly than it did to others. And that's still true today. And so this is a little bit of a digression, but I think this is important. You remember when we did the parable of the sower? And the seed is the same, but the ground is different. Sometimes people had thin soil and didn't last, and some people had rich soil, and some people grew up but then got choked out by the cares of life. What's that saying? Faith and fruitfulness come to some people, and sometimes it doesn't ever come to others. But the point I want to make to you is the women believed quickly in this story, and the disciples believed, but more slowly. There are people in your life like this too, and I want you to be encouraged about it. This is part of the story, is not everybody comes to faith as easily as others. Not everybody comes to faith on the same time frame. And that's why Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, said he told him this story about the persistent widow 
so that they would always pray and never give up. Don't ever give up on people. Have you ever known somebody that you said, when that person becomes a Christian, I'm pretty sure hell will be frozen over. You know, it isn't going to happen. And I hope that you have at some point in your life, I mean, you may be right about some people because not everyone comes to Christ. You have a narrow gate, a wide path. But I hope you've seen people and you said, never thought I would see that in a million years. And so the point I have here that I pull out of this story is the truth of the gospel and the necessity of the cross and the empty tomb. But the other thing is this story in its subtle little things tells you don't expect everybody to come to faith at the same time. And so the moral of that story to me is don't ever give up on people. Keep praying. Don't ever give up. The people I worry about the most are not the people that are hostile to the gospel. In, in my little view of the world, there are two groups of people that are very hard to get them to place their trust in Christ. One is someone who thinks they already have Christ and they don't. And the other is someone who just doesn't need Christ and just doesn't care. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy, is not caring. The easiest people to tell about Jesus are people that have never heard or never thought, wasn't raised in church, heard about this Jesus guy, know nothing about Jesus. Oh my goodness, we need to talk, right? Very good. That was the whole first century crowd, right? That's the book of Acts. The other is the people that are mad at Jesus. People that are revved up and angry, and you're gonna say, Terry, you're crazy. I know, but they're passionate. At least they're passionate. The problem is, they're just misdirected passion, right? But at least they're fired up. And honestly, that kind of, of anger and passion and so forth can turn to faith faster than apathy. And so I just want to say that the hardest people to continue to pray for, that's why Jesus said, pray for your enemies. He didn't say, you know, pray for your friends, but also pray for those people that are kind of on the fringe, they're just social friends, don't know them all that well. He said, pray for your enemies, why? He pegged out the hardest people to pray for. The hardest people you probably find to pray for are people that have hurt you, but also are probably the people that are on television shaking their fist and calling you names because you're a Christian. Don't give up on them. People come to faith at different times and in different ways, and some far, far more easily than others. And then finally, here's what the, this story, the pattern of this story and how it affects our life, and here's where the rubber meets the road, is when you think about this story, it can camp out in your head, and you can say, yes, I understand the theology of the cross, I understand the atonement for my sins, the reconciliation with God. I understand the empty tomb, and that means that at the end of this life, when this body wears out, and it surely will, then I will be like Christ. You know, I'll be raised from the dead to walk in newness of life and eternity in a body that never wears out. There'll be no tears. All that Revelation 21 and 22 promise that you hear. That can camp out in your head and you say, okay, I got that going for me when I die. 
I haven't found that that made much difference in my life, because that's the way I thought about it when I first became a Christian. I haven't found that made much difference in my life. I would go on about my roller coaster up and down, trying harder, not trying so hard, backsliding. By the way, I became a Christian a little bit later in life, and I was introduced to faith in Christ. And a few years later, I was introduced to this concept of backsliding. And you don't hear much about it anymore, but what a wild idea is that you can just totally go off the rails. Well, I thought, well, let's try that. But my point to you is, all joking aside, is that as long as it stays up here, that's good. I didn't notice that that impacted my life very much. The reality of the empty tomb, the reality of eternal life has to change. And when it gets here, it will change the way you look at everything in the world, everything. If you look at the, if you think that the worst thing that can happen in life is dying, which is a common secular idea, common amongst Christians as well. I'm not saying dying isn't an unpleasant experience. What I'm saying though, is if you think that's the worst thing that can happen, you're not understanding eternity at all. There are way worse things than death. And for Christians, death is just the beginning of something great. This is why when you read the church historians of that 300 year period I was telling you about, unbelievable how many Christians were killed. I mean, and, and ask them, are you a Christian or not? And some said no, they denied Jesus. But hundreds of thousands said, yes, I am. Well, then you're going to go be thrown to the animals and eaten. Or a lot of times, get up here, whack, off with your head. Let's find where are your kids. Hey, you, kids, get up here. You Christian too? Yeah, whack, you die. I mean, Literally, right then, right there. What does it take to walk up? And then, here's the really thing that'll blow your mind. And this is historic, historically recorded. There would then be other Christians that walked up onto the stage and said, I'm a Christian too. And they killed them too. In fact, Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, writes that in one circumstance, he's writing about a particular place and a particular time. He said, so many Christians walked up there they had to change executioners because they got tired. And eventually, even the secular people said enough. How many Christians died? What does it take for you to walk up on that stage and say, I'm a Christian knowing you're gonna die? You actually have to believe in the empty tomb. You actually have to believe. This is nowhere near the worst thing that can happen to me. In fact, death is unpleasant but you will not believe what's on the other side for me. Once you really believe that, and I mean not just here, but deep down in our bones, it changes the way you think everything in life. Nothing is, quote, life or death anymore. It doesn't mean that life doesn't matter anymore. It just means you put it in a completely different context. That's really the template of this story. The amazing thing, there's no other religion that has a story like this. And when I say story, this actually happened. But my point is there's no other religion that says, oh, Gandhi died and he was raised from the dead. Nobody says that. And the reason is that's why most of them are philosophy. They focus on this life, how well you act on this life, and maybe the gods will be happy with you later. Christianity is radically different. It says because of eternity, Everything changes here. 
and now. That's why Christians are peculiar people. Christians aren't peculiar people because they act better than everybody else, that they're more moral than everybody else. That's not always true, is it? If you have unbelieving friends, they're gonna say, look, you're a Christian, and you know what? I'm not, frankly, I know you. I'm a better person than you are. I'm nicer than you are. And you can say, I know, has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about. Christians aren't peculiar because they act better. Oh, will they act better than they used to? Sure, will they be the champion moral people of the universe? Not necessarily. That's not the point. They're peculiar because they actually think this life is not the end, and they literally live like that. That is extremely peculiar. That's what got everybody's attention. Not because you're nice, because you guys actually believe in eternal life. So I'll stop there, but I'm telling you, you cannot underestimate this. That's what's unique about Christians. Question. Understanding that the death of Jesus was necessary, mm -hmm. was it necessary for it to be such a cruel and painful death as crucifixion? That's a really uh, astute and probing question. Was it necessary for it to be uh, a cross? Well, the, the first level answer would be that's what was prophesied. So in the sense that it fulfilled the prophecies from 700 years earlier, then yes, it fulfilled the prophecy. But that question's actually a little deeper. So let's go to the next layer. So that's the easy answer, okay? Yes, because that's what was prophesied and that is indeed what happened. And so you see God being able to orchestrate history. That's important. A deeper question has to do with suffering. It's important that Jesus suffered. I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying it's pleasant, but it's important. I want you to think about it this way. You are going to suffer in your life. Some of you are gonna suffer bitterly, some less so, but everyone's gonna suffer. The one thing that's sure in life, I mean their whole religion, Buddhism is based on this truth. Everybody suffers all the time, and then you die. I mean, that's the essence of the problem of Buddhism that Buddha's trying to solve. So my point is, everybody knows you're gonna suffer. We suffer less than anybody else in history because we live in America, but even so you go, wow, yeah, they had it bad, but you know what, we suffer too. You're gonna to suffer a lot of things, everything from emotional trauma to financial trauma to stress to anxiety to heartbreak to disease to you name it, we're going to suffer. The question that, that you're gonna struggle with when you suffer is, how can a perfect God who loves me understand this suffering? Now you're not saying, hey, this is so bad, God, I bet you can't understand this. All you did was make the universe. I mean, my point is, is that you know, you're not flipping about it, but it's like, God's there, I'm here. And God said, it is necessary for you to suffer. It is a fallen world. It will happen. And so God didn't take away your suffering. He said, I'm going to come and be with you in your suffering. And so the whole idea of the incarnation, Jesus is God become flesh. He's Emmanuel. I just want you to connect all that you know about the New Testament. It all ties together. God becomes flesh so that he can suffer, and God knows 
what you are feeling. Now, did he know before? I, I say yes, God knows everything, experiences it, but now you know Christ is with us. What's the most common thing that God says to his people in the Bible? All the way from Joshua, be strong and courageous because I am with you. Abraham, I will be with you. Moses, I will be with you. What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew? And listen, I will be with you all the way to the end of the age. Let me tell you what the end of the age is. I will be with you until I see you on judgment day and you walk into heaven to be with me forever. I will be with you. It's important that God is with us in suffering. You have a, a God who literally has suffered with us. And when you go through struggles, I want you to think of God as being a far off God. God, you see my trouble, I know you love me. God, please give me strength, intervene. Whatever you're praying, I want you to have the image of God as God, you know exactly what this is like. Because even though you didn't have to, Philippians chapter two, Christ didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to, but instead he humbled himself and took the form of a human being, being obedient even to death on a cross. That's Philippians 2. You see how this ties together? It was important that Jesus suffered because God said, I'm not only here to take care of your sins, I'm gonna do it in a way so that from now on, you know that I am with you in your suffering. I just I want you to think about that when you, when you struggle because God is so personally with you, not just powerfully with you, but so personally with us. Make sense? That's the essence of the gospel. What we just talked about is the good news. There are a lot of things that masquerade as the gospel. There are a lot of true things that are said. God loves you. That's true. That's powerful. That's life-changing. But it's not the gospel. It's part of the story. The gospel is you and I were dead in our sins and our trespasses, Ephesians chapter 2. But while we were still sinners, Romans chapter 5, Christ died for us, Philippians 2, in a horrific way on a cross. Matthew my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured complete loneliness so that you and I never have to endure loneliness without God. You see how all this ties together? That's the good news. And the empty tomb is just the icing on the cake that says, and you know what? This little life, as difficult as it may be, is just the beginning of something glorious. Think about that. Let that soak in, because once we live like this is true, like those Christians that got up and said, you can kill me right now, but I'm not afraid of death. Oh, I don't want to die. I don't want to go through the experience of dying, but I have my mind so firmly committed to the reality of eternity that this is not the worst thing that can happen to me. When we believe that, oh, our lives will be transformed and everybody around us will go, those people live differently. Make sense? So when you suffer, remember that. Christ came to suffer with us so that he is with us and understands when you suffer. Thanks for uh, being with us through this whole series. It's been great. 
And I hope it incents you to say, man, I'm gonna read the Gospel of Luke and think about these stories. Take your time, read each story and then say, who am I? Remember, that's our story. Who am I in this story? I didn't wanna ask you this time because all the women would go, we're the women. All the men would go, we're the people that aren't in the story. You know, the disciples, the guys that were supposed to be there. I didn't ask you that, guys, because I didn't want you to have to answer. Next week is Thanksgiving. We don't have programming at the church at all. But then the next week, we'll start an Advent series on December 1st, 8th, and 15th. We want to talk about love, joy, and peace. And maybe we'll sneak some politics in there, too. So I'll see you guys in two weeks. Thanks. <laughs>